0: Everybody and welcome to the Myo Minds podcast. I'm your host, George, and here at Myo Minds, we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful hello everybody and welcome back to the myo Minds podcast as always I am your host George and today I'm here with Dave Chawner hi Dave how are you
1: good Tom. i'm I'm just gutted that we can't be here in person doing this because I, I think it's one of those things it's always it's always nice of doing it in person but still the wonders of technology we're here together.
0: Yeah, we have actually officially met though, which is nice because I, <laughs> I think I've maybe met like one or maybe actually maybe two of the people who've been on my podcast. Um, so really, yeah, you're I think you're my third person who I've actually met
1: in real life. Do you still feel like you've actually met them though, even though it's just been like via the screen? There is that because obviously,
0: obviously, as well, I feel obviously I try to make the podcast as kind of relaxed as possible and I want to get the real person, but I feel like people also kind of, you know, you play up to the podcast to some degree. Like I, I speak in a different way than kind of slightly than I would normally. And if I was meeting people in person, I would obviously have the kind of regular chat beforehand. And I suppose we do talk a little bit, but it's not quite the same. So yeah, I, I think maybe sometimes I worry I'm not meeting their kind of
1: um, more relaxed self. But then there's also something really odd on a counterpoint on that of that you there's something strangely really intimate about seeing people's houses and their pets and their bookshelves and stuff like that, that you would never sort of see before. So that, that's why I say that, because I think you're absolutely right of seeing a screen, absolutely not meeting a person, but then seeing that they they really enjoy like Ian McEwen or something, something <laughs> strangely like telling about that
0: yeah I can see you've got a a stack of books above above your I don't know what that is Cupboard. I've
1: got loads of them we've also got a lot of uh a lot of washing up (laughs) <laughs> that needs to be as well, hence why i'm doing this <laughs> you've also got
0: very posh headphones as well for the people listening at home dave's got some very posh headphones
1: well i tell you what a little story about these headphones i used to do traffic and travel for bbc and commercial radio and they when we went did i tell you about this when i met you
0: i don't think so i don't think so
1: Oh my God, a story that I love telling that's absolutely <laughs> true is it's all outsourced, right? So different radio stations, there'll be nat- national and regional BBCs and you'll do this traffic and travelling. You'll do about eight or nine bulletins per hour and you'll just be sat in your little booth <laughs> doing it. And I will never forget the day that I went there and I was doing my first bulletin. They said, well, shallow th- uh, shadow this guy, listen to what he sounds like. And that'll give you an idea. And he sat there and went, So the M20's backed all the way up to Stabber John Trent. So we'd uh, absolutely <laughs> avoid that if I were you. And, and he just kind of went, uh, That's me, Bill Shanklin, on Absolute Radio. And I kind of turned around to him and just said, Oh, you know, that's really good. Hi, mate. Sorry to introduce. I didn't get to say earlier on, my name's Dave. I'm here because I'm, part, you know, t- t-. And he genuinely just turned around to me, Oh, hi, Dave. You? And that was his genuine voice. Oh, my God. They all had that. Every single one of them had radio voices. You'd like go into the kitchen and be like, "Oh, it's somebody's voice." <laughs> Thanks so much for the cake. And it was like so odd. But yeah, I used to do that until, unfortunately, we lost all of the funding. I couldn't do it anymore. So that's where the headphones come from.
0: Ah, maybe maybe that's kind of it's. Some people are born to be radio presenters, and you just know yes. based on the voice alone. You you come out from the womb, and you just like. You kind of feel like you you cry, and I was gonna try. I was I was just about to then. I was genuinely gonna to attempt to cry in a radio presenter's <laughs> voice. How would that sound? Do you want to give that a go? Because I feel like I've reeled myself.
1: I, I think it would. It would kind of be like. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> tune in at seven o'clock when I'll be giving you the latest update from nine Nappy. you know that kind of I I think that's but that that equally that sort of thing scares me does that not scare you that I I might be really good my one talent might be something that's not even discovered yet or I might be something that's like obsolete like I, re- I might be really good at creating vellum or like a really good blacksmith jobs that happened like 600 years ago that nobody does now it's like my thing I always just worry about that
0: yeah I suppose, I suppose that is a, a truth um we never really know what it is what would yeah I guess if you believe in being destined to do something and and you I guess yeah you never know really what it is do you actually end up having to do it. I was picturing myself then being one of those doctors with the big like bird mask you know the one with the big like pointy nose <laughs> yes. Um maybe I was maybe I was destined to be one of them one of the people that put leeches on people
1: and also i think that makes sense because that was like the 15th century version of like doing a podcast going around finding Chat those shit. stories like, like, yeah dude, that's brilliant.
0: Yeah, well yeah maybe that's it maybe that's maybe in a different life that's who i was um so dave we've kind of gone off track here but i i kind of want to um zoom us back into obviously the the my minds mm. podcast um we often talk about exercise and eating disorders and uh, body dysmorphia and that kind of stuff and i think the first thing we should mention is i think you're potentially the first person on here who if i'm quite right in saying this if i remember correctly you hate exercise
1: oh bore it hate it don't get it <laughs> never understand it i will it was always a means to an end for me so i think this will be a real challenge for me to try and understand that mindset. And I, I think inherently I'm a lazy person. I was talking to someone the other day and they were saying like we're at the gym, you know, people pushing on to do one more rep one more lift and i'm like well we've got forklifts What do i need to do it? just get one of them to do it I, I ne- i'll never understand that sort of thing
0: yeah yeah i, I think that's great though because it's like a different perspective because everyone that comes mm. like i think most of the people i'm trying to think back now we often talk about people who do exercise and obviously i'm a i'm an exerciser so um yeah it's interesting to get someone else's perspective and i i suppose we'll, we'll touch on that as we go forward um but i i guess i want to start with your I guess however you want to tell your story um obviously for people who who don't know Dave does comedy um and he often talks about his experience with an eating disorder so I guess my opening question to you is when did you first realize you had an eating disorder
1: and I think it's a I think it's a brilliant million dollar question because without being too pedantic about it's weird to know when you know something. It's hard to. I think, like, very much in the early days, I remember I started exercising, weighing myself more, getting slowly obsessed with calorie counting. And increasingly, those kind of behaviors came around. And I started, you know, skipping school in order to go back and weigh myself. I started not doing my homework because I was researching calorie counting on the internet. And I think even back then, maybe I realized this is a bit abnormal. This isn't, you know, what Nick or Tom or Joe or Ben or Sarah are doing. Um, but I still was reluctant to admit it because having an eating disorder felt like something that was on the horizon. It was like a rainbow that I would never fully, you know, chase and never kind of properly meet. So. I think that the easiest time to admit that is actually about three years in when I already kind of knew that I had an eating disorder, but never really admitted it. And by that time, I'd sort of managed these things so much and I ended up down in this tiny little um, uh, what's called boarding school in Somerset and uh it was terrible but also amazing that they have uh, for students over the summer holidays they open up these boarding schools in the uk and allow kids from all over the country to come to the uk to improve their english and to better that and there were camps all around the uk and i was based down in deepest darkest dorset and i was only there because one of my mates was currently doing it in uh dover and they said they've had a dropout can you get the next train down there it was a couple of hundred quid for a week which for me back then was like and this is all relevant because it was three miles away to the nearest shop and when i arrived it was just pizza pasta chips there was no healthy option and i thought that's fine you know like i won't have anything to eat and you only ate three times a day and there was nowhere to put your own food, to make your own food. There was no healthy options. There was no calorie count. And I was amazed how much it impacted me. Mm -hmm. And I started to set my alarm in the middle of the night to do to do sit-ups, to do press-ups, to do uh, runs uh, around the campus. I started having nightmares about food. I started pinching my belly and all of those sort of low self-esteem and horrible sort of behaviours that I did. And I started binging in front of all of the class. And I I started binging in in the food hall. And then I started purging. I started hiding loads of different things. And I think that was the first realisation to me of like, oh, this has got control of me rather than me having control of it.
0: Yeah, and that—that's a, I guess, a difficult realization for a lot of people. Um, when you, I guess, realize that you're powerless to it, or at least you're you're in a position where you, yeah, you're not in as much, um, yeah, you don't have as tight a hold, on some on your life as as you once thought you had. Um, how how did that realization kind of impact your 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 own self-image I guess the way you saw yourself
1: it's you know what it's weird because it was a mixture of emotions because I for the first time like I, I kind of felt like oh yeah th- this is a wake-up call to actually do something uh about it which in an odd way was sort of exciting because I kept on promising myself things were going to get better they were going to get easier they were going to get better you know more interesting um But it was also terrifying. And it was also, I kind of felt a little bit at odds with my own realisation to kind of be like, well, what what do you want me to do with this information? What what can I do? It was, it felt like just before, gone to sit like a final exam at the end of the year someone had come up to me and said I'm pregnant it kind of felt what why why have you told me this now why did what what can I do about that I've literally I'm I'm in too far I can't stop and and so it felt really conflicting and it sort of pulled into focus a lot of things I already realized that like yeah I was struggling to gain a grasp of my own life and yeah I knew that I had self-esteem issues and yeah and knew that i was lonely it was like wh- why now why are you telling me this now i can do mm. absolutely nothing about it and, and i think that was the overriding feeling yeah of frustration really
0: so would it be safe to say that you felt angry at yourself for realizing
1: i definitely think i was angry at myself for realizing but i i <laughs> i don't know if you get this as well i was also quite angry at myself for not being able to cope for not being able to kind of go because like, look bottom line with the chips of that I had a lovely life like you know I didn't have a dad that beat me I didn't have a mum that kept me in a coal shed until I was 13 and I got rickets and a hump you know I, I like I had a lovely childhood and I had a great university experience and it kind of like made me frustrated and angry that it was like I did feel and this is before the term snowflake had all come around I I just felt a little bit sort of like why can I not cope when everybody else can so yeah I I was incredibly angry but I think the best way to put it is you know whenever you like you um uh, whenever you do your Christmas uh well I don't know if you do Christmas decades decorations but you know when you pull out your fairy lights and it was knotted and tangled and you don't even know where to start that's what the like eating disorder was almost like it was just a jumble of shit that I was like well what what can I do with that and the thing that frustrates me about the sort of narrative that goes around now is when people talk about their experiences and their eating disorders because they've had time and space and reflection that all seems very linear that all seems very straightforward but actually in the moment it was just chaos and some days i thought about it non-stop other days i i subliminally slept walked through my own life and did the actions but never thought about it so it's really hard to try and make sense of it
0: and that yeah i think that's really important and i guess it's it's something that i maybe need to start considering more when i talk to people about eating disorders and stuff is is yeah my my story with it, because I guess we're trying to make it sound like make sense, aren't we as well? Because someone's asked mm. us to tell us the story. So we try and make it make sense. If we actually went through each bit step by step, you'd realize actually it's just so chaotic. And I really resonate with with you saying that you kind of felt um, like a disappointed or annoyed with yourself that you couldn't figure it, you couldn't deal with it. Um, and I think a big thing for me is um, I attached, because I think a masculine trait is being able to deal with what's going on in your life and you, know, that kind of stoic, like nothing affects me, nothing bothers me. And I think realizing or coming to the acceptance that I had an eating disorder, you know, thing, things got too much for me. And, and then it made me generate this disorder that to me made me feel like less of a man because I couldn't, I couldn't hack it that's how i felt anyway i don't know if you resonate. how did
1: that like manifest manifest for you did that was that like a loggerhead that you you then almost felt feminine or you just felt like less of a person in general what what do you mean by when you say you felt less of a man i think that's really interesting
0: a big thing for me and it's something that is common in a lot of the kind of muscularity or like the the, the bits that we know anyway from the research and muscularity stuff is that people attach their self-worth to mascul- their masculinity and often people describe a um, discrepancy from an ideal masculinity state so like you know the, the further away you feel you are from what a man should be and you're a man in inverse comments like mm-hmm. the man you're masculine um the more the more at least it seems that they have higher levels of muscle dysmorphia and stuff like that so i think when, when i say i'm less of a man it also means i'm less of a worthy person at least in my head that's kind of how i i'd written it
1: you see i feel very lucky because i never had that i i've never been uh, a man uh i kind of like you know I, I did rugby and i played sports but i think that's where like humor was kind of introduced to me and i was very fortunate that that, that <laughs> nobody nobody's ever looking at me and going oh there's dave he's an alpha male i i always was was very very beta and i was quite you know i enjoyed that and uh i think that instead of muscles or competition or any of those outward facing stuff i knew that i could get on with the jocks quite well if i can muck about with them if i can make them laugh so For me, and this is why I find this really interesting, uh, the the anorexia entered as a way to take me out even further of that masculinity and make me this androgenine thing that I quite enjoyed being away from camp and silly. So Mm -hmm. I suppose you're coming coming at it from completely different angles, but ending up at the same point that I wanted to be less of a man because I always felt really insecure about being a bloke but for different reasons so what do you mean by different reasons so i think one of the things one of the reasons it's sort of uh on set for me was around puberty and i think that's because there was a lot of anxiety about sex and sexuality and physical relations and without sounding like a sort of proper uh, you know sort of like um right wing kind of like oh the straight white man is the only man that's now Uh, without sounding like that I remember that even back then being fed a very sort of strong narrative and I think this possibly comes because my dad was so wonderfully emotionally intelligent I remember that as I started reaching puberty I saw how it changed all of my male mates and they're obsessed by sex obsessed by like you know like we would pretend to like pump chairs in the middle of drama. <laughs> people would draw pictures of cocks all over my maths book. People would act like whenever there was any sort of like game or something, it would always like reduce the sex and I just remember seeing that and power that it had over people but also because I wasn't a masculine man I had a lot of friends that were girls and I remember them being very put off by this and like oh, it's icky, it's sticky, Why? Are you da- it's just loads of fluids, what are you talking about this guy? <laughs> and I was very insecure that I hadn't become sexually active. I was very worried that I would never become sexually active. So actually starving my body starved and starved out that sex drive and via that process it made me less of a threat it made me less of a predator and a pariah to those girls and I just became little old Camp Dave sitting in the corner doing his crochet or whatever I was doing it's and, and and so that was the aspect of masculinity that I never really liked—the kind of oh, "Do you want to go back to my place?" which was odd because in treatment, I I had to literally kind of uh, meet that and deal with that. So I sort of went through a second puberty at the age of twenty-four, which is just insane.
0: Wow! So yeah, so. In treatment, you say you you met that. So is that you know? Did you was it talking with a, a counselor about like your thoughts and feelings around that, or you know, what, what was it that kind of? I'm just I'm I'm I guess I've, I've kind of got so many questions yeah, yeah. because this is so different to my like you said. We well, I think we're coming from such different sides that yeah. How how did that kind of come about?
1: I think it came into two ways one is horrible to admit the other one is uncomfortable to admit so the first one that's horrible to admit is for a year I kind of saw um so I went through therapy for two and a half years but good like the first year of that I just saw I'd never had a gap year and I just thought fuck it this will be my gap year so (laughs) I just tried loads of things and it was about nine months into therapy my therapist realized that this was a huge sticking point for me and I kept on coming back to it so we kind of I I just kind of sexually experimented if I'm entirely honest and this also happened that I was going up to the Edinburgh Fringe and I was doing a show about sexuality called Sex, Hugs and Gender Roles And I was just very open with it, that um, I preferred spooning to sex. And I used to do this whole routine about how spooning is better than sex. And so I started inviting literally the show that I did, I was very lucky that we lived in the middle of Edinburgh and they used to invite girls back for a one night spoon and uh and then the next year where we did we did the exact same show because it turned out to be so successful that the venue sort of said well actually please can you put it on again and they rebooked it at a nicer time and and strangely Stuart Lee came to see it very odd but we um and so we, we came out like the next year uh and and I was further along in my therapy and I shouldn't I shouldn't admit this, but like I created a sex tent in my (laughs) room. (laughs) so and this is what's really odd because it's edinburgh there were there were uh, seven of us living in a two-bedroom flat so i had someone genuinely this is how cramped edinburgh gets i had someone living in my wardrobe she had my walk-in wardrobe in my bedroom so i didn't have any space so to deal with that i had really big dramatic um uh, curtains that overlooked the royal mile and so I like folded. i I'd sort of put a table over and use these curtains and it just became my own sort of boudoir and they everyone <laughs> referred to it as Dave's sex tent and I just kind of like experimented with that to find, and it was it was kind of cathartic to be able to like genuinely say to show sort of uh different girls because that's my persuasion like, I really like you I really get on with you and I find you quite attractive would you you know like to have? Sad, so, uh, obviously, I'd miss out the the whole sex, tent thing, but I get so I did that. But then there was also something as well that sort of ties into that. And the second thing that is uh much more uncomfortable to discuss, I'm not uncomfortable discussing it, but I also realized uh through meeting my now wonderful partner Una that I had this thing called phimosis, which is very common in blokes. Basically, it means that um. The 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 neck on my jumper was a little bit too tight, okay. um, and so I had to have a circumcision because sex was incredibly painful for me because my foreskin wouldn't like properly retract, and uh, genuinely it was so painful that <clears throat> once during the act of coitus, I I actually passed out. Just never a oh good look God. for anyone. So yeah, mate. made oh, mate, so many stories there so many stories. And I was uh, apparently in higher grade cases, sometimes it can be so painful that just the psychological trauma, the brain's reaction to that is like, no, (laughs) bailing. And I found out that I've got this really long story, but I I have doctors, uh, I've got a corporate agent that books uh, actors and people like communications experts in order to test doctors to make sure they're fit for practice. And the reason I found out that I got, was i was doing this catheterization station and they give you these prosthetic legs with this prosthetic penis and these doctors come in and this one guy came in and he was training to be a surgeon but i guess he was training to be a tree surgeon because he just got no like no finesse and he just got the tube and it's like oh you might feel something in the fake penis and genuinely just the thought of that it went yeah. from you you're in an upright standing position and i just bam just collapsed and i fell on my because i fainted i didn't put out my hand so i fell on my nose uh, i fell on my face so i broke my nose i was bleeding from the eye socket and i like bit through my lip and everyone was like oh that's something weird it must be something in the morning you must not be very and then the next week i was observing somebody else do it because you've got to make sure that you're all doing it exactly the same way and just observing it caused me to do the same thing and loads of different uh, you know, sort of a uh, uh, different urologist and people that I had to saw uh, see and then eventually I found out that I needed circumcision so no wonder I was so worried about sex because it mm. was so incredibly painful. And again, I think there's one of these things within that of like, um, sex, obviously very, very pleasurable that then for me, it was quite painful. So I had this again, mixed messages of you want it, but you really don't because it hurts. So yeah, it was really odd, but those are the two things I think hugely changed in recovery for me.
0: Yeah. And I, yeah. And I guess, yeah, you were saying how almost your eating disorder was a way to push you further away from sex or at least make you less of a threat for it. So when actually you became more comfortable with sex and, and you know, Kind of found that then maybe the eating sort of started to come away is that what you experienced or at least started to no, kind of fade completely
1: off? yeah my, my eating disorder was almost like i don't know if you've ever been in like a really uh competitive environment and it was almost like uh let's say you're in a job interview uh and it my, my eating disorder almost became like the person in the room that sort of sat there and went to everyone oh, don't worry i i'm i actually don't want this job at all so you battle it out between you i can't leave but it kind of it made it anesthetized me it made me you know not combative with other men it just took me out of the race and i loved that And it's like okay i'm gone see you later bye Mm. and i love that about the and i hugely missed it and i found that very difficult when you started sort of the refeeding and going through a sort of healthier relationship with food
0: That's that's so interesting. And it's not something that I thought it's kind of a route that I wasn't expecting us to go down, but I've never I've never really thought about or explored the kind of relationships between sex and eating disorders and how they can play together. That's really interesting. Is that something? Have you have you spoke to many other people who have similar experiences?
1: Loads. loads and and it's one of the things that i always sort of you know it's one of these like uncomfortable truths i mean like obviously any change in sort of mental health can be a change in libido change in sex drive etc but speaking anecdotally to a, a a lot of uh blokes about this but also women as well it really does come up and that's why i feel that the uh relationship that women have with sex is possibly a little bit different to the relationship that men have with sex but also Mm -hmm. for me there was that was the only time that my body image became entwined with my eating disorder because when i started losing weight very early on people kept on telling me that i looked good so that set up a very formal chain of thin equals good so that must mean fat equals bad and i wanted to be gooder and gooder so mm. then i had to become thinner and thinner and as i gained this attention from you know and then i started dating this girl who was well out of my league and i never thought would ever notice me and i thought well if i lose more weight surely i'll get more attention from girls and all i ever wanted was not a shag not a you know a girlfriend was it a, a partner i think mm. that was one of the biggest things underneath it was i wanted someone to share my life with and it was kind of made worse than the fact that my mom was <laughs> almost and i say this as as a gentile but like my jewish friends always say you know it's almost like the jewish mom syndrome of like have you got yourself a girl yet <laughs> that kind of like constantly asking have you met a girl have you met a girl have you got a girl, a girl? A girl? so constantly asking in so many different explicit and you know sort of coded ways and that was made almost worse because i was like mom i i want a freaking girlfriend I, I like i would love nothing more i'd give an arm a leg and a left bollock at this point to have so much as a girl wink at me mm-hmm. um and so i think one of the the only body image thing that came up was to try and make me more attractive to girls and there's an irony there that you know sort of talking to girls uh now like yeah like i i actually think that when you were ill and when you looked like that you were like the least attractive you've ever looked so there is a an an irony there
0: it's yeah it's interesting because i suppose um yeah maybe you can explain this to me because so the eating disorder itself was to was on the one side to make you less of a threat to women and, and maybe yeah keep you out of it but then also on the other side you were getting thinner to attract more women maybe maybe i don't know tell me if, if i'm wrong but i know it, my personal experience with with my eating disorder it's, it's different but um it was kind of like this in the way that you're taking yourself out the game to risk being disappointed or to kind of protect yourself from potentially yeah you're not getting the not getting the girl
1: C- c- mate, c- absolutely couldn't agree more I think that's a lovely way of explaining it of taking it out of the game but then I don't know if you get this as well is that unfortunately like I say it wasn't a linear thing so there would be some days when I loved being less of a threat and I loved being androgyne and sexless and those are the days when you know that kind of whole threat bit kind of like it fed that bit of the the disorder. but then there are other days when you know sort of say you know like days like today it's lovely sunny people are out and about in the park they're having a bit too much to drink that's when your kind of like monkey party your brain kicks in and goes mm. oh I actually I, I do although I feel bad about it I still do want sex and I suppose I should focus on that so yeah it was taking me out of the game but I still wanted to play that game mm. it was kind of like it was kind of like and I see this as a bitter stand-up comic Uh, of like, it was almost like, you know, one of my best mates had just, you know, done live at the Apollo. And I was almost like, you know, like, yeah, like I don't, I don't even want to do Live at the Apollo. I'm like too cool <laughs> for Live at the Apollo. But then, like, the producer had come over and chatted to me, and and I've got all of these conflicting things of like, oh, if I get on with them really well, maybe they could get me onto Live at the Apollo. But no, I don't want to do it. But then I kind of do, it. you know, it was yeah. that sort of conflicting thing all the time.
0: Mm. Again, okay. it reminds me, and like I was saying, it reminds me of kind of me with with myself. It's before I'm ever doing like um, an important event or something that means a lot to me my brain kind of I get the urge to binge eat and I think I've been talking with my counselor about it recently and I think what it is is that when I binge eat I feel like I'm no longer like the the best me because i'm bloated i'm kind of like i'm gassy i'm like a, you know i've got water weight and i i don't look the same i don't you know i don't feel the same i don't feel good and i think what i'm doing is i'm i'm giving myself that cushion of like if this thing doesn't go that well afterwards then it's okay because it's not the it's not the good me it's the me who's just been binge but i've been binging um, and I, and wow. I, the reason I mentioned it was because I used to do it with, when I go on dates with girls as well, when I was at uni, before I'd go on a date with a girl, I'd, I'd always, and it, often I would do it, I'd get this huge urge, I need to binge eat. And I think it was because if, you know, things did lead to that and I ended up taking my top off and they didn't like the way I looked, I could always be like, well, it doesn't matter because actually they just, they just didn't like because I, binge, I was binge eating earlier.
1: Wow. And what do you do now to stop those urges of binging for whatever reason?
0: I think because I've, I still like, sometimes I just do it and I, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm definitely not fully recovered myself. I do still binge um, occasionally. Um, But I think the thing that stops me is the fact that I have that awareness that I'm, you know, I get, I get the kind of feeling to, to do it. And I think like, you know I'm doing this because I'm trying to protect myself all this is going to do is make me like not perform as well as I as I could do so there's no like there's no point doing it so then I kind of stop myself um yeah so it's it's not I can't really say I, I, I could tell you exactly what it is but it's just I can kind of talk myself out of it and it depends on situation to situation
1: I really respect that though. I really respect that because I do feel that there is a kind of narrative as we were talking about stories earlier on of like this, always like, you know, and then I was better and everything is sunshines, unicorn farts, and rainbows. Yay. I oh, know, amazing. But actually, <laughs> that that is uh, a real truth of it. And that's why it's difficult to spin it in a story narrative because it's something that is ongoing and you will, I mean, who you know i'm not diminishing or demeaning or belittling anything that you've gone through but the truth of the matter is who doesn't binge eat sometimes it's, it's yeah. about why and how and yeah. stuff but the, the 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 point there is that i don't think anyone gets through life without doing that so if you are setting up recovery as never binging again you're setting yourself up to fail
0: yeah yeah and, and i suppose that is a difficulty yeah and i think um in in line with that i would say sometimes i do still i kind of turn them overeating versus binge eating so um you know i do still overeat sometimes so sometimes i just mm. i fancy eating a couple tubs of ice cream or whatever and i'll, I'll eat the ice cream um, and it doesn't make me feel bad but sometimes i do it and i know the difference like i know that the, really this is yeah I've never, I, <laughs> um, for people listening at home, Dave's just kind of leant forward and put both his arms on the table.
1: That's <laughs> quite an aggressive <laughs> gesture. <laughs> um,
0: that's, why, that's why I was laughing. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, the difference for me is when I'm in that kind of binging mind, it's, it's a, I I have a desperation and I also um, am terrified that someone's going to catch me. And I think that's what I notice is I, I hide, so I'll always go to my room and eat it um, rather than eating it in front of people and not being bothered by that. Um, and then also, I'm 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 whilst I'm eating it, I'm thinking about how much more I can eat. So it's like it's desperate, like it's like I need to get this down quicker because then I can get more. Um,
1: yeah. See, that's interesting because I I can. Com- completely understand that yeah and everything that you said makes good i remember i sort of uh binge a because this is one of the common misconceptions about anorexia as well it's like no it's just not eating it's just not food whereas uh i never went days without food. I I never really went a proper 24 hours with absolutely nothing. Um, And I I still feel really insecure and really guilty about that, but absolutely did the binging thing. And I used to treat it like a marathon event. And I don't know if this is something you did, but I remember when it came up to certain uh, big things uh like you know sort of like say say the prom or whatever anything that i'd sort of be a little bit i would i would sort of keep that very much in my mind i'm going to eat less and i've got to train myself to think of that event and think about how much better i'm going to feel when there if i don't eat but then after that i would just and there was no enjoyment in eating i remember when i was 16 i remember i only found this because i keep a diary every single day and i found this by accident a couple of years ago and i'd completely forgotten or repressed (laughs) Hmm. thing where we'd had some family friends around and there had been a buffet and i had just gone hell for leather i was like eating party sausage rolls without even chewing them i was literally just chucking them in my gob because in the build-up to that i knew i was going to overeat so i thought restrict so much more so that it sort of balances out and I was in bed by 830 because I was on the floor. My belly was distended. And I remember my mom looking down at me going, Jesus, I don't think he's all right. Do you want to go to bed? And I couldn't be around people. And I would completely forgotten about that. So hearing you say that like, makes complete sense to me of mm. the, yeah, thinking about how much more can I get in? Do you, do you ever taste the food when you binge?
0: um i don't think so although i i tend to but i think i think it's more that it's i have certain foods that i think it's everyone resonates with this who binge eats. So you have you have certain foods that you binge on and usually they're like the the bad foods at least i think most people um, resonate with this maybe you don't but um so it would always be like pizza or ice cream or like cakes or sweets or something that that I would normally not eat something because normally I'd be trying to eat all, you know, for the gym, I've eaten all, you know, in in inverted commas, clean foods. Um, so then I'd always, you know, have these, these binges. And like you were saying, um, I resonate a lot with what you said about kind of planning it or, you know, waiting for something, you know, in the gym culture, there's a thing called cheat meals or cheat days, um, and you, people talk about you know bodybuilders talk about how they diet and then they have a cheat day to kind of relieve their stress of dieting. Which you know, even just saying it like that, it just sounds disordered. Um, and know, yeah, I'm not saying that all bodybuilders have eating disorder or anything like that. I'm just, in my opinion, um, practicing. But the behavior is like waving a fish in front of the crocodile's mouth, and it is like you, you're kind of asking for something to to latch on there. Um, and yeah, and I disguised my my binge eating. Um, a lot with just it's just a cheap day it's a cheap meal uh, and I kind of that's kind of how I convinced myself that it was okay.
1: Wow that's really I mean doesn't it make you realize I think in 20 years time we're going to kind of look back at this period of history and certainly before and go like that is just an eating disorder like and I don't, don't want to over pathologize stuff but even uh, my sort of my sister's boyfriend's mom Talks about doing the five-two diet. She's like, "Oh, Dave, I will, I will only eat." And she tells me like all of the calories because she's got them down to like the actual kind of, "I only eat X calories on that day." And it, it's it's less than your brain needs to function. Yeah. So, oh, but I'll, I'll do that twice a day, Dave. And it's it's absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I just like to keep a thin fettle. And you're like that. That is not. That's not a healthy relationship with food that you've got there.
0: Yeah. The thing. Yeah. And this is, you know, I um, I recently did a podcast with uh, Dr. Carolyn Plateau. You might have heard of before, but she's like an mm. eating disorder um, expert and she does um, a lot in athletes. And I was speaking to her about it and she was saying how, um, you know, I used to always say that everyone has some form of disordered eating at some stage. And she kind of corrected, she did it she didn't in a nice way, but I think she corrected me in saying that, you know, a disorder, disordered eating is when you when it affects your life negatively for like a significant amount of time et cetera so you know i i now i now don't think that every that all these people have some form of disordered eating i think you know, but i do think everyone practices some form of disordered eating behaviors at some stage and like I said to you you know i think if people are doing like the five, two diet, you know, people, there's so much information on the internet now about like what's clean, what's not There's keto, there's paleo, there's um, the five, two diet, there's fasting, there's all, all this shit that tells you there's good ways of eating and bad ways of eating. Like how, how the fuck are people not meant to get disordered eating? Like how are they not like, how do people not get it? Um, I think, and that's, that's such a scary thing for me is I think in the culture we're, we're moving towards and, and part of potentially already in and i think it's going to be more shocking that people don't develop an eating disorder than the fact that they did
1: of course it is of course it is for so many reasons one is we've never had a period of history where food has been a so cheap b so readily available and c so prevalent (laughs) i.e online internet advertising everywhere you go there's also mass information and food so you can find out about these things all of the time. Also, we're kind of splintering off into this kind of postmodern society, which means that you can find your echo chamber a lot easier. So when mm-hmm. you're in the 15th century, there's no way that you could have listened to a pro-anna podcast because you didn't have internet, you didn't have electricity, you didn't know what a podcast was. And if you came up with it, then you'd be burnt at the stake as a <laughs> witch. So I think that these kind of ideas that yeah, I, that I really feel that it is something that is being exacerbated, but equally i think that you know you can whinge whine, and moan about stuff but i think you could meet that with the culture as well because by that same token we have got ways of talking about pro recovery ie this podcast Mm. we've also got methods of talking about it and i also really don't think and this is not a very popular idea that there has ever been a period of history where we have been better at talking about mental health. I certainly know when I was 15, 16, 15, 16 years ago, actually, then you, I, you never have taught like this, never talked. Mm-hmm. 2002, Stephen Fry did a documentary called Bipolar and Me, and I remember it came out, everyone had seen it, and there were so many hush conversations around that score that day, because that was the first time for so many people they had ever heard Uh, mental health be discussed in a way that wasn't talking about some axe wielding murderer up in Mm. Hull, or pejorative sentences saying, Oh, my God, you didn't you did the homework, that must mean that you are psychotic or whatever. It was the first time that someone had really spoken about it in a down to earth non pathological way and said, You know what, I have this so many other people do, it's okay.
0: Yeah, and I think it's incredible that sorry, I, I, I think it is incredible that we are we and I agree with you. We are talking about it more than ever before, um, and and that's that is great. My my only issue is, and I I don't know if you agree on me with me on this, but I'm I am scared that media at the moment is so like everything's you know it's Twitter or Instagram or um, you know it's it's things in short kind of reductionist views you have to make everything simple and easy and mental health is so not simple and easy um that I think although we are all talk a lot of people a lot more people are talking about it um I'm I'm fearful that we're putting out the wrong information and sometimes it's even like you know as someone who's who's saying that I don't even know really what the right information is a lot of the time like I'm not really sure how to articulate it in a way um but that's something I'm, I'm
1: worried about I think you can use that personally, and I'm very blessed on this. I think that comedy is so important because we live in a sound bite clickbait generation, and that's why I think comedy can kind of almost come to the rescue. I, I am paying out as some sort of white, valiant horse, where it's <laughs> steed comes up and goes, Yay! Uh, but I, I think that the beautiful thing of uh, brevity is the soul of wit, and actually, comedy, how boil these monolithic, like huge. ideas down into a concentrate and kind of like makes it sense to people and I think that's one of the things that I absolutely love uh, about comedy and creativity because I really feel that there's a turning of the tide because so many longer the days that you know whenever you talk about eating disorders there'll always be a meme of footprints in the sand or some picture of a dolphin or and you know what like suicide has the highest rate of uh sorry construction has the highest suicide rate of any industry and when we're talking about mental health all of these memes and tweets and pictures you know that are always of like diamonds or rubies or whatever do you really think those are reaching the people that absolutely need it and that's why i think comedy is kind of important to sort of try and change that tone
0: i agree 100 and and as you say that it reminds me that i've basically not asked you any of the questions that i was meant to be asking no. you today um but i i do i do have one that i really want to ask you that i wrote down and this kind of is a nice segue is obviously you do your comedy and you've done comedy on eating disorder and you have a ted ted talk where you talk you know you do one of your kind of sets around anorexia um when did your eating disorder become funny
1: Oh, what a good question! I, I think I think um, I used humor in order to I used humor in order to sort of distract people. It's very much like a magician, you know. You kind of like you got the one hand like focus on this hand, and then round the back, he's like essentially mugging you. And you go, oh, I've got my wallet. <laughs> um, that was essentially what comedy was for me. And I remember very early on, people are going, "Jesus, you're it, losing a lot of weight." I'd never forget my mate Dom, very openly going. Mate, how have you lost so much weight so quickly? I was like, anorexia, isn't it? Everyone has a hobby, (laughs) and people will kind of like laugh at the affrontishness of that. And then I sort of found. Comedy in university I'd never been to a stand-up comedy club before and we went and there were people like Russell Howard there were people like Chris Addison John Richardson and the thing that I loved about it was they were all freaks they were all losers they're all deadbeats you know and, and I loved that because they never hid from that they never tried to pretend there was something that they weren't and I specifically remember John Richardson coming up wearing his little cardigan and you know and normally that's something that like my mate going out with my mate who was in the navy later went on to be in the marines like really get down you get down you get down you and if i'd have ever worn a cardigan i'd have been like nailed to the nearest tree whereas (laughs) actually someone like john richardson was like yeah i am a nerd and yeah i dress like this and that's okay and i'm gonna celebrate that rather than hide from that but the eating the sort of still then wasn't funny and i tried to make it really funny and i tried to um sort of use the different skills that you know you sort of pick up in order to do it but you know what i think the honest pity answer to your question is the eating disorder itself only became funny post recovery because then it felt like a different way of seeing it a different way of approaching my life and my body and that was the first time that it seemed to me a weird and ridiculous way of trying to make sense of stuff. Whereas actually in the eye of the storm, it, it it wasn't something I had the perspective distance to question, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. It does. Um, I guess that's,
1: yeah, I think a lot of people resonate
0: with that idea of, it's hard to kind of zoom out of your eating disorder when you're in it because that otherwise I think you wouldn't have it (laughs) you know the whole i think the the hardest thing about the eating disorder is like you're saying it's that chaotic um i think you said the like the christmas lights you know you there's it's just overwhelming it's everywhere it's you don't know where it's coming and where it's going and that's kind of the the reason why it's so
1: hard that the weirdest thing that i found about doing that original show is i kind of went there and the first show that i did was very kind of veneer there were like so many shit jokes and terrible puns and horrible things of like oh i've got a lot on my plate haven't i you know those kind of things are very low-hanging fruit jokes and the thing that as i mean that that show took me years to write literally years to write it's the first anniversary that i'd ever done and it started as a two-hander with me and a mate and we uh did this show called over It death anorexia and other funny things where i would do half an hour she'd do half an hour and we talked around the country and it kind of just developed from that but the weirdest thing that really showed me about that was it wasn't the little jokes it actually wasn't the sound bite jokes that people loved people found the weird and wonderful stories that didn't make sense to a general population people that were lucky enough to never have eating disorder um, but actually made sense to people with eating disorders so a, a good example is a silly little joke that I tell that's absolutely true it's like when I was a teenager uh, no matter how little I'd had I'd run up to my room and I'd do 50 sit-ups 50 press-ups 20 squats and I was chatting to my mom and dad about this and I sort of said you know yeah, I know that you knew about the exercising why didn't you ever say anything to me about it and my mom sort of said well Dave when your teenage son keeps on running up to his room and all you can hear is rhythmical <laughs> banging followed by repeated grunting you don't really want to know what's going on behind that and it was really odd to me that of all of the jokes and of all of the things that I'd sort of spent so much time trying to create that was the sort of thing that people connected <laughs> with the most is the absurdity of it all yeah and
0: you know, it may, it kind of made me laugh even then um yeah so <laughs> yeah I, I i honestly i love i love the stuff you do and i'm kind of conscious of the time now because we're, we're coming up to an hour um but i i guess i want to we spoke about it a little bit but just to kind of get us before i do the final three questions i i want to know how how's your relationship with food now and and how is like how is has the comedy affected your relationship with food
1: Yes, comedy Comedy has absolutely affected my relationship with food. And actually, it caused a huge relapse when I started doing the show because at that point in time, I'd never sought out and got professional help. And when you're hearing about people being NG-tubed, inpatiented, people constantly, needlessly telling you the, the weights of their anorexic friend, family, loved one, and I was filled with this huge imposter syndrome and it kind of led me to get worse before i could get better so it did harm me in that way i think now it uh, has helped because it's connected me with so many lovely people present company included it's also uh sort of given me this way of sort of uh approaching things and and i i do really like i've got to admit now that i've got that there's this weird thing that now that i've got the show and it's bedded in and i kind of know it i get so excited doing that show because i can kind of i still find jokes in the like hidden corners like doing comedy is not like a lot of people think it's not getting up on stage and go right so what i'm going to talk about ah i'm going to talk about this even eddie right this is a so, I um, one of the shows that I did was directed by the guy that um directed uh quite a few of Eddie Izzard's um shows. Like, yeah. I think like four out of the seven were uh directed by John Gordillo. And even Eddie, there were certain times when he'd be like you know on the boards of his twins, you go, I was just talking about, oh, I don't know, even within certain shows, even that. Was stooged. Even that was actually stuff that he'd put in. So wow. it's not made up on the spot, like a lot of people think. But there are certain bits in between it, the, the riffing and stuff. So I, I love doing that, and I'll still find little things that I hadn't explored in corners. And I think I've got completely off topic, and I can't even remember what the question was. But I think what I'm basically saying is, I I, I hope I never get tired of doing comedy of it and i love it and it's such a stupid pathetic ridiculous thing to do and such an odd way to make a living i I think i kind of revel in that
0: yeah well i i i do think because the original question was like how has it affected your 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 relationship with food and i think it almost sounds like having those moments of riffing off it and having to come up with jokes and stuff it's almost like therapy because you're you're figuring out your relationship with food, you're figuring out your eating disorder as you're trying to make it funnier.
1: Yeah, completely. And and also, like, even with lockdown of, like, exercise being restricted, being constantly surrounded by food, not having any work or income. And then there's other stuff in my personal life that was kind of going on. That would be really diff- difficult. So I never want to paint this kind of veneer of like, "Yay, everything's fine. Jazz tunes and that's it. And kind of everyone goes out. Like, oh, Isn't that brilliant? I think it is difficult and it is um, uh, challenging. And I think comedy has... Um, Comedy has affected that relationship with food because I feel that I can be more open about it now than I ever dreamt that I could. Because I feel that whenever sometimes I think one of the people, one of the things that people are worried about that when you talk about eating disorders, there's always that tone shift. And I've I've done this before. I've been talking about shows that I've been plugging on like BBC Radio, Bumblefuck, or wherever it is. And the the presenter will be kind of like, Oh my god, so you're doing a show, uh, about dogs, isn't that amazing? I love my dog, and then you chat about dogs, and you go, Yeah, previously I've done shows about mental health, and literally the arse will fall out of the interview, and instead of being like, Oh my god, my little dog, Georgie, okay? <laughs> now for now for the radio, for kind of show, and it's and. I I really, I found that kind of more isolating than anything else, that people stopped dicking about with me. People stopped joking and playing pranks on me. And I think that comedy is actually enabled me to enable other people to go it's okay to talk about this it's this a very real part of life and although it's not something that i wish on anybody else ever it's something that i think is important to talk about and i think it's affected that relationship with food by giving me a positive outlet to talk about it and yeah like you say selfishly it's therapy
0: yeah i think i think yeah. Like you say, when you, when you make it funny and you make it a, a kind of a comedy show, you allow other people to explore their feelings and thoughts around food as well, because, you know, they can maybe relate to some of your jokes and, and, and it gives them the, like you said, you know, maybe the, those people, those, you know, like you're saying, the construction workers, you know, I'm thinking like the stereotype that the you know, bloke who, who, you know, won't talk about his feelings. If it's funny, maybe that opens the door for them is that something you've yeah. experienced has anyone has anyone ever come up to you and said that your comedies helped them with something like that
1: oh god like without sounding like ge- genuinely and i i always i will be the first to put myself down. i hate doing it but i will never forget when i did that first show in Edinburgh. And it was honestly absolutely true and it kind of really overwhelmed me is that it was uh it was three week into a four week run at the fringe and a girl came up to me after the show we'd had a lovely show and uh she came up to me and she was like crying and she said oh my god i'm so pleased that i saw that um because i shouldn't be here and i was like what The fringe like you know like have you got somewhere else to be and she said well yes kind of the fringe like a week ago i made an attempt Uh, on my life and i've been struggling with anorexia for a while and i've never got help for it because i've always been ashamed and it like sort of killed my i think it was her sister that it killed um and she sort of said and the only reason i came to the fringe was because i i i didn't go through with making attempts on my life and i made a really rash decision to come and see a mate and we came out and saw a show but i'm going to ring up my mom i'm going to tell her now and i'm going to book into a therapist and she was like crying and i was crying and everyone was looking at us going like what the fuck is going on uh people are, like walking past my show go well i'm certainly not saying that if that's a <laughs> comedy and that's the reaction um but even within that what's really odd is like look for anyone that's listening to this later we've only opened up lockdown two weeks ago and even within that time i've already had two and i'm not going to you know, I'm not going to send him names. Two pretty quite high-profile acts that have come up to me. One of them explained pretty much textbook version of orthorexia, and the other one, uh, sort of, I was really surprised. I said, "Look, I read your book, and um, I'm really worried that I have similar traits. But I, when I start eating, I can't stop. And when I get home from gigs at 3am, I will have prepared food in the flat to eat." and I would just get it all in me and I can't stop eating. And then I will like wake up, just passed out on the sofa, surrounded by food. And I'm really nervous and I've put on so much weight and I feel so out of control. So it it has, it has really resonated in a way that I never expected. Mm. And I think one of the things that it's really shown me is that comedy isn't always measured by the laughs. And that's already a wanky lefty libtard thing to say, but I think sometimes one of the things I've found is I've got a lot more comfortable with the show as I've done it more and more to be like, okay, this isn't an audience that so like, ha, 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 belly laugh, chuckle, fine. And actually sometimes those can be the greatest shows because you've talked to people afterwards and they've just been like quite engrossed or quite thoughtful or talking to people. So, it, and I do love that ability that the comedy has to reach people of all different types of classes that you will get your builder star blokes. on the right old chuckle and go, actually my wife back home. I think she struggles or you can be in say St. Albans and people are quite thinky thoughty. And then like, afterwards sort of say, can you have a chat with my son? Cause I think he's going through some stuff.
0: Yeah and that, that's amazing. I think that's the 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 wonderful thing about anything creative isn't it Is we can you know you can really reach people. Um yeah, I think I think it's really cool and I I, I was saying that I wanted to kind of um, speed things along but I'm I'm just enjoying what you're saying so much that I kind of want to ask this question anyway so I was just I was just going to go with yeah. it anyway. Um we spoke the the other day when we did this this film thing at Nottingham. Um and I asked you a question. And you you said you'd never thought about it before, and I'm wondering what your answer is now. maybe I don't know if you thought about it, or maybe just your mind's changed. But who do you write your comedy for?
1: And, and I remember that so specifically because it was such a it was like such a spearing question that I thought, what an incredible question. And I think I write comedy for a couple of different people, but I think the main the main one by far and away, there's like, you know, the me in the present who, you know, kind of has still got to work and wants people to enjoy me, uh, you know, like enjoy stuff, etc. There is obviously the audience that are out there and things change. But I think overwhelmingly, because I thought about nothing else on the train back to London when I was coming back from Nottingham, I thought about that question over and over again. And I realized the person that I'm, trying to write comedy for is the 17 year old confused dazed and weird me and i always use that as my barometer of like it's okay mate it's okay to not have the answers it's okay Mm. to not have the words it's okay to go through all of this stuff and you know what i'm not going to sell you any sob story or any fake ending that you're going to go speak to the gp and it's going to evaporate in a puff of smoke things are going to be difficult they are going to be challenging but you know what that's life and that's everyone as well but learning about it learning how to talk about it learning how to deal with it that is going to be planting a seed that as it grows and gets easier and better then you are paying yourself your future self a huge fortune so take stock now think about it now and i think i always think back to that 17 year old me and i'm so lucky that i write my diaries every single day and i realized that like i kind of got stuck at that age that was the first year that i ever wrote my diary when i was 16 um and i got stuck at that age of 16 17 so i suppose that is who i always write everything for and i suppose then everything else gets tacked on to the outside of that but i think it's a brilliant question Mm,
0: and that's yeah a great answer as well and um it's very cool that you keep your you've kept your diary every day. Has that been really strict? I love it. Yeah, have you
1: have you kept? Oh, it's- yeah. Brilliant. I, best thing I ever did, because one of your other it kind of links in very nicely with one of your other questions that you sort of said is a person in fiction who inspires you. And I remember sixteen, seventeen, I read Yes Man by Danny Wallace. Oh, what a man. I haven't seen the film, so I want to ruin it. And he basically ends up breaking up with his girlfriend and um, he's on a bus. He's really down and out and he meets this guy just a random bloke and he says just say yes more and for a year of his life he says yes to anything unless it is illegal immoral or harms himself or anyone else and he ends up flying the world he ends up becoming a tv show host he ends up meeting all of these incredible people and i remember reading that when i was really scared of growing up and the future felt like this kind of weight on me that was pressing down and it completely shifted everything to be like this is exciting this is an opportunity adventures of mental and so i kept my diary and i'm very staunch that i kept it to be read so it's not got you know dear diary i think i fancy this person in it it's like it's embarrassing because of like some of the terrible attempts at humor but i genuinely when i was uh 20 23 to 4 i i kind of moved to london i moved into this new house and i was having a big um big New Year's Eve with a whole bunch of mates I'd only met that year and genuinely one of the best New Year's Eves I've ever had was uh, I talked about my diary to someone and they said Can we go back and relive the year so on New Year's Eve having a, a pint glass full of gin we all sat there going through the diary and hearing the first time that I met Ems that I met Steve that I met Claire and everyone was gonna go oh, now you're gonna say I'm a prick and stuff like that and we'd remembered things that we'd forgotten and I think not only for people that might have mental health problems not only for people with eating disorders write a diary because you are not only taking authorship and control of your life you're also taking control of how you remember it but also it pushes you to do things that we can all get stuck in our own ways on our little tracks of life. But actually that year that I wrote that diary, it pushed me to say yes to the opportunities that I might have said no to, or go to that bar or go to that party and met that person. And it Mm -hmm. makes things exciting rather than intimidating.
0: That's really cool. And it, the reason I kind of wanted to question about that is because I, I recently watched a, an interview with Matthew McConaughey, and he's recently wrote a book because he had kept a diary every day for so like a few years. And he and he said, and he, I listened to this interview, and he said basically what he did was he he got all of his diary. He had, he had several books filled with this diary and he read through them. And the book he's written is based on his lessons that he's learned from reading his old diaries um so maybe wow. maybe maybe that's something you can do maybe that can be your next book
1: <laughs> mate that's um that is amazing i yeah i don't think there's any lessons to be learned in my book to just, <laughs> i mean they're, they're filled with like weird observations and stuff that i'm kind of like did i write this when i was drunk but i love that idea i think that's mm. brilliant
0: yeah yeah i'm i'm i really want to read it because i've heard apparently it's it's um it's really good. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, but anyway, I want to go on to our, the final three questions. You've already answered the first one. Um, you beat me to it, um, which was a, a person, real or fictional, who inspires you. we have gone with the yes man. What's his name in the, in the book? Do you remember?
1: Danny Wallace is the Danny guy Wallace. that um,
0: wrote it. He's brilliant. Danny Wallace. Excellent. So question two is a phrase, um, sorry, a phase in your life that you didn't like at the time. Um, but now looking back, you know, positives came from it.
1: Um, you know what? Like, It's a brilliant question. I thought about this. I worked uh, my second ever, well, my first ever job in radio was owned by, was in this little company that I won't name, but uh, it was horrible. the the bo- There were 24 of us in the company and the boss, genuinely, when I joined, and I don't mean to offend anyone, uh, three people came up to me and said, I genuinely think this the, the boss, the owner of the company is a psychopath. And I was like, ha ha, no one likes the boss. And someone gave me John Ronson's psychopath test to tell me uh, about this. And uh, I mean... He, he was definitely unhinged in some way i mean he fr- friday he was very open that like you know he'd come in and say well we're going to fire someone today and that'll be it you're out the door uh, i remember once being in a meeting with him and someone he didn't like something that someone had said about a campaign that we were doing and he just got the coffee pot and smashed it against the wall and coffee went everywhere he fired a man for getting hiv because the guy said well i've got to go and get my prep and he said well it's your choice to to be gay, so you brought this on yourself. He once came into the office and was really jittery, and we we're like, Are you all right? And he was like, Yeah. And anyway, he kept on any time the phone went off, he got really like nervous. And in the end, we we're like, Why are you so and we're Well, I was driving to work this morning, and uh, this cyclist, I mean, in fairness, he had got the right away, but he shouldn't have been going so fast. And anyway, he was at a junction, and in fairness, I should have stopped, but anyway, it doesn't matter. I I pulled out and and I mean, he should have been wearing brighter color clothing, I think. But uh, anyway, I hit him, and um, I looked in my rearview mirror, and um, he didn't get up. So I just decided to kind of carry on driving. But I'm just worried that the company car has the number written all over it, and I'm just worried that if he's still alive, that he saw it. And we're like, what? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if he's still alive, he might have caught the number, and then I don't want him to. So we're like, so you don't, you. You could have killed a man. And he was like, Yeah, well, I, I don't, you just don't know it. Me. Genuinely went it. So that was a weird and horrible period of my life. It was like 50 hour a week. But and coming full circle um the humor I have never laughed more to get through that there was so much gallows humor that people used to use and we would go out drinking we'd go out laughing and it was a weird mix of emotions because I look back at it with sun-tinted uh you know rose-tinted goggles but I was leaving for work at 5am I'd never get back until 7pm and then I was gigging on top of that Thoroughly unhappy, but because we had because of the wonderful other people in that office, we had so much laughter that that made it work, that made it sort of worthwhile. So, yeah, that is the time in my life that I sort of was rubbish, but I kind of look back on fondly. And then I think that's an excellent one.
0: Um, you might another book that you might want to read is called uh, Confessions of a Psychopath, um, which is fantastic. I, I I only kind of skim like skim read it because I borrowed it off somebody, but I'm, I need to get it and read it properly. But it's it's an anonymous written thing from a it's a woman who I think she's a, a lawyer, um, and she's a psychopath, and she basically just talks about her experience of being a psychopath. Um, and, and apparently it's something as, as as little as like one in 10 or something people are like a psychopath. Um, and yeah, she basically writes the book, like talking about what it's like to be a psychopath in the world. Um, and it's really,
1: it's really cool. And you should definitely read that. Really common in business owners though, because you, when you've got to make like, um, this person, uh, hired his his wife in the the company, um, and he had to fire her um because of that and and there was literally there was no second guessing like you get rid of emotion for it it was like well she's out she's fired and it's like that's your wife (laughs) um but when you remove emotion from a situation it actually horribly can make you a ruthless business person yeah yeah so i'm definitely going to read that
0: yeah it breeds success doesn't it i suppose i think you know like you say it's sad but i think taking the emotion out of things makes you very successful often so The final question, the third one, um, a
1: phrase to live by. So I am going to be really cheeky, and I want to answer that question, but I also want to have my cake and eat it, and that's not some terrible pun based on what we've been talking about. (laughs) I would say I'm going to go for a song to live by purely because – it is filled with phrases that are dripping in gold and honestly anytime that anything gets a little bit too much or i feel a bit grumpy or glum i always listen to wear sunscreen by baz lerman i absolutely love that and i think some of the phrases uh, that are in there absolutely kind of they, they just really it's just filled with sorry I'm trying to type as I do this but I don't know if you have you heard the song
0: no I'm I'm looking on my Spotify
1: right now I'm gonna listen to it as soon as oh we, as mate as I done. mean it starts with enjoy the power and beauty of your youth you'll never understand that until they've faded but trust me in 20 years you'll look back at photos of yourself and recalling in a way how you never grasp the possibility that lay before you don't worry about the future or know that worrying is effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubble gum and it just goes on and honestly it is full of these incredible beautiful and it's 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 not a rap it's not a song it's not an anything but it is filled with all of these incredible little bits, little phrases. Don't be reckless with other people's heart. Don't put up with people being reckless with yours. Remember the compliments you receive, forget the insults, keep your love letters, throw away your old bank balance. It's just brilliant. So that would be my phrase is that entire song. That is a fantastic
0: answer. And I'm going to listen to that song as soon as we're done.
1: Dave thank you
0: thank you so much for coming on the podcast Mm. I hope you enjoyed it
1: I absolutely loved it thank you so much for having it and to anyone that is listening don't forget to subscribe don't forget to (laughs) like and do all of the comments and stuff like that because I I genuinely implore respect and champion you for doing this mate because I think it's incredible it really is
0: Thank you so much, Dave. Um, And for everyone listening at home, as always, thank you so much for listening all the way through. And I hope to see you at the next one. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Here at MyMinds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out MyMinds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there and we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.